This podcast is sponsored by Plume. Deployed in more than 20 million homes globally, Plume helps service providers increase ARPU and reduce OPEX by reforming the bundle around next-generation smart home Wi-Fi experiences that subscribers love. Learn more at Plume.com. Welcome to the Light Reading Podcast. I'm Kelsey Zeiser. I'm an editor at Light Reading. And I'm Phil Harvey, and I am also an editor at Light Reading, but not as much of an editor as Kelsey is sometimes. <laughs> now. And our guest today? My name is Nick Feemster, and I am a professor in the Computer Science Department at the University of Chicago and the faculty director for the Center for Data and Computing, also at the University of Chicago. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Nick. Um, good to have you back on the podcast. So how is the network changed and, and progressed as the pandemic's been going on. How, how have things changed, um, perhaps, in terms of capacity and, and usage? And um, How's the internet holding up? Is it doing okay? <laughs> Good question, Kelsey. I think when last we chatted, we had just started looking at some of these effects. And so, you know, now I'm, I'm happy to report that we've, we've done a, a number of studies on this using a, a variety of data sources. And I'm, and I'm also happy to report that, you know, the internet, technically speaking, has, has done pretty well over the course of the pandemic, but, but certainly we can get into the details on that. For those people who, who have internet, it has done pretty well. There are some other questions that we can certainly talk about there. I guess to, to touch on that a little bit, how are things going in terms of the digital divide? I mean, it seems like there have been some creative ways that some communities have addressed making sure that students, for example, have access to internet. What have you been seeing in your research? Are, are things getting any better? Well, I think there's there's certainly some progress we can certainly see in, in the short term, in the temporary term, you might say, uh, by way of various subsidy programs. Uh, Chicago, for example, has a, has a philanthropy-funded subsidy program. I think at the federal level, we're seeing things like the emergency broadband subsidy program, and for the for your listeners who may not be familiar with that structure, essentially what that is 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 a program by which people uh, can get money to help pay for their internet subscription. And the mechanics may differ. It may be money directly going to the subscriber, or it may go directly to the ISP, and then the user may see a a, a lower bill, for example. With regards to to these subsidy programs, I mean, I think. It's, it's great that we're seeing those, but I think also many communities and cities have the, the clairvoyance to, to recognize that this is not a long-term solution necessarily. It's certainly a helpful part of the solution. It's certainly been good as a, as a stopgap in some cases. There are social reasons as well why it doesn't necessarily always fill the gap, but for, you know, for some cases, that's been useful. But I think there are a number of places where that a subsidy program really needs to only be part of the solution. One is that some of the reasons people don't sign up for internet access are not uh, economic at all. They may be social, they may be cultural, they may, you know, there may be other, other factors at play. And then I think the other reason why we, we, we want to certainly think beyond subsidy, because a, a subsidy essentially is somebody's money basically being spent to prop up a, a status quo. It's not a new infrastructure and it doesn't fundamentally change the dynamic. And so in the best possible light, this is great. It basically makes the internet more affordable for the people who need, for whom affordability is an issue. But in the long term, one could sort of also view it as just throwing more money at, at the problem into, into a into a black hole over the you know over the infinite time horizon. And so, I think it behooves us to think about 
about other types of solutions as well. That's a great point in that. Well, the subsidy programs also kind of create, like you said, they kind of perpetuate the status quo. And then you're left with what we are seeing happen now, which is various states are taking it upon themselves to pass laws that will, or 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 look for programs that will help cap what internet service providers can charge for internet access. That again is another another way of tackling the problem. But these these don't that to me these feel like a band aid on the issue, but it doesn't seem like a long term solution by any means because these these things are going to have to be if they're if they're always one election away from being tossed back to to zero or completely obliterated then we haven't really solved the issue which is everybody needs connectivity all the time a quick follow up on the network issue it seems like just a month or two ago we were having a conversation about this but it was actually almost 11 months ago cl- closer to a year times nothing but a i guess a square circle or whatever in the in the pandemic we were in this situation where you were just starting to gather data about how the network was holding up it seemed like everything was going well enough I'm particularly curious about what you found in terms of consumer needs when it as it relates to latency because one of the biggest changes that I guess happened between now and 11 months ago is just the day-to-day consumption of video conferencing and video streaming. It's become so quickly a part of our normal life that you know people are talking about having Zoom fatigue and <laughs> and things like that. Do networks get Zoom fatigue, or how how uh, how does that work on the other side? What was the were most of the service provider networks able to hold up well enough under those kind of extraordinary demands? That's a great question, Phil. I think and and latency and the changes in traffic patterns are related in the ways that you mentioned. In that certainly for applications like Zoom, they depend on having latency below a certain threshold. But also another sort of related point there is that as opposed to many other things that we tend to do on the internet where we consume and where we download a lot, video conferencing, of course, is a bit more symmetric. I'm also sending content upstream. And so that changes the nature of, of traffic ratios and also has the potential to introduce latency effects, right, if the upstream is not provisioned to, to handle that increase in demand. Latency ties in very much into the into the Zoom discussion, both in terms of effects and in terms of user experience. Um, so I think like that that's a good opportunity to kind of like say a few words about some of of what we you know what we found in some of our our, our work. And I should say that there are many data sets and many perspectives one can can sort of take when looking at internet uh, performance and traffic patterns. And so. We used specific data sets to understand this. One is the FCC's Measuring Broadband America data, which is public data set. I think we managed to get some early access to the pandemic period before they published it on the website for some of those months, but that's all public data. Anyone else can kind of now look at the same data that we looked at for the late, for some of the latency analysis I'll tell you about. Uh, and then another thing that we looked at in partnership with some ISPs was traffic patterns across interconnects. So how specific ISPs interconnect to content providers or application providers. And I think two patterns emerge there, one pattern with respect to utilization and another with respect to latency. One is that certainly there was there was a significant bump against the ceiling in March or April 2020 as people moved home <laughs> for work. Uh, and started, like you said, the start of Zoom fatigue. And that is quite visible 
in you know the utilization patterns across ISPs. If you look at sort of you know traffic volumes, both absolute and relative, you can see. Another thing that's sort of very specific to that is that the ratios changed as well for specific providers. Certain ISPs saw significant changes in the traffic ratios across interconnects to those providers because of the increase in Zoom traffic, or Zoom, WebEx, Meet, uh, all, of the, all of the video conferencing applications. That being said, that traffic is still a relatively small overall, like the, the you know, the relative increase was, you know, was significant, still a relatively small fraction of all internet traffic by application. I mean, this is nowhere near approaching like, you know, how much Netflix or video on demand traffic as a total fraction of the traffic, still relatively small. Uh, I think if memory serves less than 10%, you know, in that range, but the, but the relative increase was huge. And also unlike Netflix, the video conferencing applications are latency sensitive. So, and of course, the whole Netflix thing was, was another issue, right? Because everybody's at home. A couple of things I think from, came out of that. One is that for certain ISPs, they did a lot better than others in coping with, with the shifts in traffic patterns. One of the things that I found interesting in looking at our data there was that some of those latency blips looked a heck of a lot like Christmas, you know, the prior year. For certain ISPs, it's like same kind of phenomena. It's like everybody goes home and, you know, everybody's like watching Netflix for two weeks over the holidays. And some of those latency effects are like, oh, the March 2020 actually looked a heck of a lot like December 2019. Not true for all ISPs, but some like very distinct patterns there. Suggesting that with respect to provisioning, I would say that in general, um, at least for the ISPs that, that we looked at, and I'll, I'll caveat that by saying that we didn't look at them all, you know, but we looked at a few big ones. And also there's probably a little bit of bias there too, because the ones where we have data on that are probably the ones that are willing to share it because mm -hmm. uh, they're doing okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, we, looked, we looked at some, some big ones. Uh, for the ones that we looked at, the ISPs responded very rapidly in terms of adding capacity on those interconnects. So it, you know, it went from sort of like a 10 or 20% increase month to month to like a, you know, 70% increase from March to April, 2020. So, you know, significant relative increases in the interconnect capacity. That was pretty awesome, I think, right? Because you hear about like, oh, the internet, just it just kind of worked. Well, that was kind of magic. I guess it was designed well, but you know, it's more than just being designed well. There has to be infrastructure there to support the demand, right? There has to be that capacity. And some ISPs, I think, responded quite quickly in terms of adding that capacity. I think it does show that the, the networks in general are a lot more flexible. Um, you know, they still have to rely on over-provisioning and things like that in order to, uh, to handle that kind of like Christmas time, once a year sort of capacity crunch. And they're moving toward being more software programmed and completely flexible and, you know, being able to just turn on capacity on demand. But we're somewhere in between that now. And I guess your data is showing that maybe we're a lot, you know quite a bit more flexible than than uh, the networks used to be. So maybe good thing this didn't happen five years ago or something like that. We would we we might not have been able to catch up. No, absolutely. And I think like one, if you know, sort of harkening back to to history, right? If we remember the. 2013, 2014 days when Netflix traffic saw huge growth and ISPs at, at the time were having a little bit of trouble keeping up with that. Or the alternate framing was that the content providers weren't buying enough capacity, right? Depending on who you are, you can point the finger in, in a variety of directions. But the bottom line is there wasn't 
the capacity to support that traffic. Yeah, good news, lesson learned there, right? Because as a result of that period, the ISPs in the last seven plus years have formed the pr pretty good habit of just regularly adding capacity on those interconnects. The, the pace at which capacity has been increasing there has, has been regular and, and, and consistent and, and impressive. We talked a bit about Netflix. Were there other factors that really affected capacity? Or would you say are the streaming video services or those kind of the big ones? I, w I would say that those are, you know, those those are by and large the, the big ones, video streaming, video conferencing. Some of the other platforms, like some of the social media platforms, of course, also serve video. Facebook, for example. So if you want to lump them in too, like I think that that would be appropriate as well. Pretty much we're talking about video. It's interesting because it's like the Netflix, you know, phenomenon. I got, I guess, would say, got the networks ready for, you know, the capacity crunch in a in a pandemic or the extraordinary capacity demands in a pandemic. Um, I would say that now the networks have to get ready for, I guess, just the extraordinary consumption of video because in this last year, especially, all the movie studios and content providers have made a concerted effort to boost their streaming platforms and to move more. Uh, you know, debuting movies on demand and and really pushing entertainment to a more of an on demand model with the, you know movie theaters closing and things like that. So it's it's um, an interesting shift is that is we're seeing that of so many subscribers, millions of subscribers leaving the satellite networks and the traditional pay TV providers and heading to streaming video only, which puts more pressure on the network and uh, I guess continues that capacity crunch. Do you see that there's going to be kind of a a plateau of traffic anytime soon? Or do you feel like just as long as we can, we'll continue to use up whatever bandwidth is available? I think that it may be the latter. We're certainly finding ways to, to use the capacity that uh, is being allocated. I think though that already we, we're starting to see some inflection points right now. I mean, it's hard to say whether this is forever, right? I think a major inflection point is is here, which is that now, I mean, not true in all neighborhoods, of course, but now increasingly you can, you can buy service of several hundred megabits per second downstream, sometimes symmetric, sometimes not. But in any case, throughput is no longer, uh, you know, necessarily the most constrained commodity here. And also the commodity that we're buying isn't necessarily limited by the ISP. It's limited by our home equipment. I buy gigabit service, for example. I don't get it. That's by no fault of my ISP. It's actually by fault of my Wi-Fi network and by fault of the equipment that I have sitting inside my home. The other, I think, is that latency is the new throughput as far as performance metrics, right? It's sort of been, I won't say ignored, but, you know, you ask someone what fast internet means, you know, the typical consumer, you're not going to get latency, you know, and it's not going to come up in the discussion. I think that's going to change in the next five years. And you asked this very question, Phil, right, about video conferencing, gaming, you know, all kinds of sort of online interactive things, you know telehealth, you know, other other things where low latency services, I think, uh, are proliferating. I, I mean, I think that's latency is an area where this is going to be like increasingly important. I think right now, I won't say they don't know how, but like they're certainly not really marketing it quite as much. I think the regulators, you know, again, I wouldn't say that they pay no attention to it, but, you know, it's secondary. And I would say that over the next five years, we're going to see a real shift in that. What should we be watching on Netflix? 
next, Nick? <laughs> uh, I'm, so behind. I'm so behind in my Netflix queue, I have to say. I'm <laughs> embarrassingly, uh, I've been doing too much Zoom and maybe not enough Netflix. Uh, I'm probably the wrong person to ask, although, you know, I have to say, I finally watched uh, The Sound of Music with, with my kids and my family over the weekend. And that was that was a good one. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's a solid um, recommendation. But, uh, but you know, I'm sure that's not news to, to many of our listeners. <laughs> Everybody knows that one. It's always worth asking people what they're watching because what I'm finding with all of these services like HBO Max and Netflix especially is that I'm only actually aware of like one-tenth of one percent of anything that's actually there. And people are telling me all the time about stuff. And I'm just like, is that on the service? And they're like, yeah, go find it. And I'm like, you know, like, I guess the I'm in a different algorithm, maybe. I don't know. It's funny. I mean, pursuant to our discussion, right? I mean, I'm more of a live sports watcher. I'm kind of a baseball fan. And so latency is a thing there for me, right? I mean, I can't have the radio on and stream the, stream the game. Doesn't work. Latency is too high. Um, <laughs> That's right. As far as, as, far as uh, binge watching, other members of my household could provide better input on that. <laughs> okay. I'm like you, I'm like, what is, what's that one? What's, what's that one? Oh yeah, I, I, I get I'm alerted to programs all the time that I just didn't even I didn't even realize they were. I was like, oh, that's a thing, and that's free. Okay, great. I'll go get it. You know, <laughs> didn't know. My last question is actually, and it's one you're not ready for, but I'm just curious as what your reaction would be is in the sense of kind of bridging our two conversations about sort of the digital divide and how that's been affected in the pandemic and, and some of the problems exacerbated and then the network health itself and, you know, kind of just latency becoming a much more important part of, of uh, the applications we use day to day for business and everything else. How do you think we should be measuring like what broadband access is? Because right now the, you know, it's it's a constant discussion of download and some upload speeds, but it seems like we kind of need something else to maybe better address the question. Or do you think that <laughs> if we get to a high enough number, the latency kind of takes care of itself? Well, I think that, that the latter is, is not necessarily the case. It's certainly the case that if if your throughput numbers are are not high enough, that there is a point under which latency will begin to suffer, right, if you load the network too much. For many people, we may be past that point already, and so there's there are other aspects where latency comes into play, independent of throughput. With regards to like, you know, how should we be measuring broadband? How should we conceive of it? I'm glad you asked. I mean, I think the last time I was on on your podcast, we were talking about some of the, the digital divide issues. We talked about that in quite a bit more length. And I think your question is is central uh, to both. There's the technical aspect of it, but it's very central to that question because. If you think about what does it mean to have broadband, right? If we if we look at a map of the United States or a map of, of anywhere, right? We could say who has broadband and who doesn't. Well, what does that mean? The FCC defines it in a very myopic kind of way. Also, I would say a little bit outdated, right? It doesn't incorporate many, many factors. Nobody even knows what that means. There's so many different ways to measure speed that it's, it's not meaningful. And so... You know, I would say that it's certainly it's speed. I mean, absolutely. There's questions about how to measure it. Certainly it's latency. It's also latency when the network is loaded, right? So-called latency under load. Like, great, I can, you know, latency is good until I actually start doing something, right? And then once I do something, if the network falls over, that's not very useful. I think that we need to go beyond that, actually, because ultimately what you and I care about, right, is not what number do I get when I click a speed test. It's like, well, is... Um, 
you know, in this case right now, Zen, how's Zencast are doing, right? How's Zoom working? How's, uh, how's Netflix doing? Can I watch my show? How's Hulu Live Sports doing, right? Is it rebuffering, right? What's the resolution that I'm getting? How interactive is it? And those come to, those are diff- more difficult things to measure, but I just think it has to be part of, part of the picture. I think there's a basket of measurements there that we need to be thinking about when we talk about what does it mean to have broadband? Ultimately, it means like I have internet access that allows me to live <laughs> a high quality <laughs> existence yeah. for the applications that I use. Beyond that, the term is meaningless, right? Can I can I basically do what I need to do on the internet? And can I do the same things that everybody else can do, right? The the equity aspect of it. There are other things as well that aren't technical that I think also need to be measured. Everything from affordability to social infrastructure, right? Uh, these things matter, but that's that's sort of a separate dimension. You make a great point about like, can we actually do the things we need to do? I mean, that's really the baseline because that, as you say, with, with the right amount of low latency connection, even a, a connection that doesn't sound terribly fast, like a 20 megabits or something like that might be plenty for a quick doctor's visit or some sort of health checkup or something like that on a, on a, on a reasonably good device. And, and that might be just fine, or that might be enough to do your one-on-one conference calls and you know get through your schoolwork and do things like that. But to do other things, you might need quite a bit more. So uh, uh, yeah, I, I do wonder if we'll ever get to a point where there's some kind of measurement of application. This is actually the perfect time for us to invent one. And um, I'm, I'm imagining that this time next year, we'll be talking all about the the Kelsey Bridgerton index. There'll be some some way to <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the broadband exactly basket. Right. <laughs> exactly. Some silly show plus plus a, a you know <laughs> plus some way of measuring uh, uh, the the entire internet. It seems it seems appropriate. I, I think what you said is actually right on on the money. Is that it is going to look more like a portfolio or a basket, if you will. Nick Feemster, thanks very much for once again for being on the podcast and for all the work you're doing uh, there at the University of Chicago. Thanks, Phil. It was a pleasure to join you again. And thanks also, Kelsey. It's great to chat as always. I look forward to joining both of you uh, again soon. Yeah, same here. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Plume. Deployed in more than 20 million homes globally, Plume helps service providers increase ARPU and reduce OPEX by reforming the bundle around next-generation smart home Wi-Fi experiences that subscribers love. Learn more at plume.com.